Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. You all voted on the film we were going to talk about this week, and the winner was The Social Network, which is currently streaming on Netflix. So if you haven't watched it recently, go check it out on Netflix. It holds up wonderfully. We're going to talk a bit about the film today. We're going to talk about how it's still irritatingly relevant, (laughs) Uh, how... Maybe David Venture and Aaron Sorkin were still too kind to Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and uh, we're also going to talk about the Oscar race th- that year and uh, how it got beaten out by the King speech, a film we're still talking about. <laughs> Remember the speech day. in the King speech? All the custom art that has been made of the King speech, the Mondo posters, the conventions. Yeah. King speech. Really, when you look at cinema, there is everything before the King's speech and everything <laughs> after the King's speech. So we're going to talk a bit about all of that, and we'll probably talk a little bit about Fincher because we both are giant David Fincher nerds, and <laughs> that's just going to happen. So, but uh, what what uh, did you notice on this most recent rewatch of Social Network that jumped out at you? Uh, well, first of all, forgive the uh, 747 airline pilot setup here. This is this is our second ever video episode of the Collider podcast. And uh, after audio issues last week, we decided to go back to the setup we usually use uh, to record just the audio only version, um, which is me wearing this gigantic nerd headset. Um, but yeah, I mean, The Social Network is one of my favorite films ever made. It's it's in my it's easily in my top 10 of my favorite uh, movies of all time. Um, you know, I felt a little uh, uncomfortable saying that early on because, you know, it just felt a little um, too soon to do it. But I feel like, you know, we're almost a decade. The the 10 year anniversary is later this year. Um and it holds up remarkably well, as you said. Uh, it may have been a little too kind to to Mark Zuckerberg, but I just, I mean, there's so much about it that I find fascinating. I mean, it was also one of the first projects that I ever was like following along from inception to execution. Like I, I vividly remember, so I was a huge Aaron Sorkin nut. I uh, The West Wing is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Um, when I heard that he was hired to write a screenplay based on this book, The Accidental Billionaires, he started like a Facebook page because he had never done anything on Facebook. And if if you watch the West Wing, West Wing fans might know, Aaron Sorkin's not really a fan of the internet. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Uh, not a fan of Lemon Lyman. Um, but so we started a Facebook page to kind of like learn what Facebook was and how it was working. But in the process was just like answering fan questions. And I even um, like he was taking requests and like I got he his assistant sent me a signed script of the West Wing pilot. Um, but he was just like, you know, anything you wanted to ask about the West Wing or whatever. But he was kind of describing like the Facebook movie, like he didn't know what it was yet. And he was just kind of noodling around and trying to figure out, like, what is the end here? Um, and if you've read The Accidental Billionaires, you know, the book bears a fairly little resemblance to the the finished movie. I think Sorkin and Fincher kind of took it in a different direction. Um, so that, like, I mean, on a base level, it was just a project that I was super interested in. And obviously when David Fincher came on board, that led a lot of credence to it. Uh, it was no longer this kind of like maligned Facebook movie. It was like, huh, what is Fincher doing with a Facebook movie? Um, and then I, you know, I think my initial reaction to it was just that I was super, it's super entertaining, but it's also super striking and compelling. Um, I was, gosh, um, like fresh out of college, um, when it, um, was released. And so it was kind of around like college age. So I found a lot to relate to there, but, you know, at that time I I just found it to be a really engaging, compelling film about kind of like power dynamics and, um, like friendship and, and, you know, youth and betrayal on this most recent watch, it just like ages even better, (laughs) I think. You know, you have Fincher and Sorkin dealing with – so they use Facebook as a backdrop um, to tell really kind of a timeless story of of power and betrayal um, and jealousy, 
But in a world in which I, I mean, it, I think it's one of the definitive films about the 21st century because it, it's the world in which the CEOs and billionaires who run the world are themselves millennials. They may be college dropouts. They are not, um, you know, these esteemed middle-aged businessmen. And so, what does that mean for these businesses? What does that mean for the decision making that goes on there? Is the decision making rash? Is it, you know, um, emotionally motivated? And that's not to say that middle-aged men can't also um, make rash and emotionally mo- motivated decisions. But I do think it's fascinating watching, you know, these kids navigate this world and this power structure and kind of the allure of the the glamour and, you know, using the Mark Zuckerberg character. And I say character because, I mean, I feel like it's probably an accurate portrayal, but I do think Fincher and, and Sorkin approach it as a character uh, in terms of making decisions. But watching that character and seeing, like, what kind of motivates him to to go. And I was really struck by the Sean Parker scene. So like, I mean, the first half of the movie, like Mark is obviously upset that Eduardo uh, is being punched by this final club. Um, and he feels left out. He's creating the social network as his own final club. And Sean Parker comes in and kind of uh, just kind of underscores everything he's been saying. And he and Eduardo have been having these disagreements over whether to advertise on Facebook and what to do with Facebook. Eduardo is kind of stuck in the the kind of business mold, whereas Zuckerberg wants to do something new and fresh and different, but he doesn't necessarily know exactly what that means. And then Sean Parker, who at that point, you know, had made a career of upending power structures comes in and kind of backs up everything Mark says. But Sean Parker is he's a parasitic character. I mean we when he's first introduced, he's on Stanford campus, but he doesn't go to school there. And he just slept with uh, you know, um a student there played by Dakota Johnson, but he's kind of a hanger on. And that hanger on kind of continues with Mark Zuckerberg and then that influence kind of gives Zuckerberg um, you know, the balls to kind of get back at Eduardo. Um I don't know. I I, fa- I found that part particularly resonant. And now I've talked for 25 minutes. No, it's fine. (laughs) How dare you talk about one of your favorite films? This podcast is over. We are done here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the thing that really jumped out to me this time, I mean, I definitely agree that Sean Parker is a parasitic character. And yet, watching the film, I feel like the story I was being taken through this time was a matter of look at these older business structures. Look at who use who used to have power and how Mark Zuckerberg upends that with Facebook and how he changes um, the, the world essentially. And I, cause I do believe the film's thesis statement is articulated by Sean Parker when he's like, first we lived in towns, then we lived in cities and now we will live on the internet. Well, if we all live on the internet and we're all part of this finals club that Mark Zuckerberg is the president of, what does that mean? And so what the film is really showing us is, watching how these old power structures are falling away uh, and can't compete with what Zuckerberg is building. And so that starts with the Winklevoss twins who pride themselves as gentlemen of Harvard. (laughs) Because we are gentlemen of Harvard. (laughs) You thought he was the only one who think that was stupid. Um, (laughs) No, but they, 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 what the thing about the Winklevoss twins and, and Devendra is that they think that it, that it will, that these old power structures will protect them. They're members of the fi- of the old school finals club where we can only let you into the bike room and, you know, our dad has in-house counsel and we're going to be Olympians. And Mark is right. Everything in their lives worked out for them until this. They couldn't figure out someone like Mark Zuckerberg who didn't adhere to their old power structure. And even then you have someone like Eduardo who is still thinking about trying to get into the Phoenix, like that's the finals club. And he wants his dad to be proud of him. And so he's trying to make his way. Like he, he makes his initial money off uh, oil futures because he can, you know, looking at weather models, like that was like, you know, if, if this is a story set in the eighties, uh, Eduardo, Eduardo Saverin does pretty well. But even when you reach Sean Parker, Sean is the 2000s basically and like the the late 90s early 2000s he's Napster he is uh uh whatever second company he tried to build with with the uh, Gage Capital he is still he's a disruptor but he's not the new world that Mark is building the new world that Mark is building is one we're essentially, we're all Mark Zuckerberg, which is so fucking disturbing <laughs> and tragic. We're all isolated and alone in these little kingdoms that we tightly control, 
but really he's the power structure at the end of it. It's very disturbing. Again, <laughs> the film only grows more relevant with each passing year because Facebook becomes more powerful with each passing year. And I think that's actually, I think the timeless quality of the social network is one of its strengths. It doesn't yeah. feel like a flash in the pan. Like I'm going to, I'm going to badmouth Oliver Stone right now. Oliver Stone makes movies where he's like, I'm going to be on, I'm going to be making a movie about what's happening right now. I'm making a movie about Snowden and I'm making a movie about W and like, this is what's happening right now, but there's no like, okay, but what are you saying about that? Like if you watch Oliver Stone's W it's like, Oh, I guess George W. Bush would have been much happier if he had been the commissioner of baseball. Like, <laughs> That's interesting, I guess. It is a, it is shocking in hindsight that Oliver Stone didn't make The Fifth of State because he has a habit of making films that age not very well. Yeah, this is, yeah The Social Network is the anti-Fifth of State, whereas, like, both... Um, uh, what's his face? The WikiLeaks guy, whose name Julian escapes Assange. Julian Assange. While every news story about him also makes him look terrible, <laughs> just like Mark Zuckerberg, The Social Network still remains an excellent film because I think it understands who Mark Zuckerberg is at his core and what he represents so that even while like Facebook gets into new scandals, like if you made a, a social network sequel, it would actually be pretty easy because, Oh, what's Facebook getting into this time? Like, Oh, now they're, you know, they're responsible for genocide in Myanmar and <laughs> like, you know, working with accidentally or maybe not even accidentally, but like working with campaigns to destroy the integrity of our election and the very information that we share. Like there's a, there's a story to be made about Facebook's effect on the truth. But even if you make that sequel, it kind of still goes back to the self-centeredness of Mark Zuckerberg. And the tra his personal tragedy is he had one friend and burned that bridge because he wanted to be in control. He wanted power. Um, it's a very Citizen Kane story. I mean, this is our the 21st century Citizen Kane is social network. Yeah. Um, but the core of the Mark Zuckerberg character always holds true. So like whenever there's a Zuckerberg story in the news, like Zuckerberg is like, I'm promised to do better. We need to be more responsible, you know, in the future. It's like, Oh, this fucking dipshit again. And you still feel like the movie is kind of too nice to him because at least in the movie, he's like gets Aaron Sorkin quality dialogue. Yeah. His, uh, when he spent that year, like traveling the country, it looks like that, uh, South park BP, like, I'm sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, That's we're him every, sorry. Time. every time, like every six to 12 months, a new face, it'll be either Cambridge Analytica or it'll be, you know, like we, you know, it'll be like disrupting elections or it'll be genocide or it'll be some other fucking bullshit. <laughs> He's like, we have to do better. And I'm like, you don't want to do better. If you want to do better, you'd work on regulations. Yeah. Me and my like, team are taking he wants, he wants to be in power. And I think that's what this movie gets to the heart of is that. Mark Zuckerberg is a very smart person, but he is deeply insecure. And that is a toxic mixture <laughs> that has, you know, you know, set itself loose on the world. <laughs> I wonder where else that mixture goes. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, so I rewatched. If you own the social network on Blu-ray and you haven't watched the feature length documentary on the making of the movie, I implore you to watch that right now. Um, but I rewatched part of that in preparation for this podcast after I watched the film. And what was so fascinating, and I say this all the time, like this is a film that, you know, um, like even thematically, everything we're talking about is very true. But even just on a base level, it's one of the best marriages of director and screenwriter uh, like ever. You have Fincher and Sorkin elevating each other's best tendencies and hindering each other's worst. Sorkin has a tendency to get a little too romantic, a little too, um, you know, positive thinking and then fincher has a tendency to make movies like alien three and girl with the dragon tattoo that are uh you know somewhat nihilistic um and you have them working in tandem and, and watching on this uh a blu-ray you're in the they filmed the rehearsal sessions and it's just a boardroom and it's fincher sorkin andrew garfield and jesse eisenberg and they're going over the script and they're reading it and fincher and sorkin are kind of debating what the movie is about like what motivates Zuckerberg and Fincher or um, Sorkin is of the mind that he was spurned by this girl and his friend did the worst thing that his friend could ever possibly do, which is to become cool. And Fincher says, yes, that's true. But also he's this genius who, uh, you know, he's going to walk into a room and, and you take the um, 
the example at the beginning when he hacks into the network and he goes in into the disciplinary meeting, he asks for some recognition. Um, and Fincher says, you know, he walks into a room and everyone says, yes, you're brilliant. Good for you. Like, because you're just so young. And it's interesting but you can because you can see Sorkin who – in so much of his work is about relationships between men and women and, you know, romantic entanglements and being spurned and feeling spited and so much of Fincher's work. And you, you think of Fincher himself as this brilliant mind, obviously, who um, was probably brilliant at a young age and felt underestimated or, you know, people um, thought he was, uh, you know, too cutesy by, you know, not, not being taken seriously. Um, And I thought that push and pull was really fascinating. And they talked about, you know, Fincher said, if you grab Mark Zuckerberg right now and you woke him from a dead sleep and you said, why do you hate Eduardo? He would say, I don't hate Eduardo. And that's, you know, it's this insecurity. It's this feeling of um, like you, you see it in the film when um, he he immediately like when he when he sees Erica at the restaurant, like in the middle of the movie. And she's like, I don't know what Facebook is. I don't care. I don't know what you've been doing. Immediately, he says, we've got to expand. Like, that's his impetus to expand, not because it's good for Facebook, but because he wants her to know that he did something great. And that, as you said, like in seeing in the world, he wants the world to know that he's doing something great. He's doing things that are, um, you know, impressive and large. Regulations be damned. Well, and it's funny, it's something I also noticed on this repeat viewing is that Zuckerberg is also kind of a parasitic creature in the sense that, yes, he is brilliant and yes, he is tenacious. But if you watch the film, it's it's not they don't make a big thing of it because, you know, obviously all the big ideas are Zuckerberg's, but he does not he doesn't have inspiration. Like when he goes back to his dorm room, he's like, I need to get my mind off her. But first I need an idea. It's his roommate that suggests comparing women to farm animals, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, it did fucking happen. That was originally the impetus. Like that that all is fact. You can can read the blog post where he. he, Where Zuckerberg now is like, I just want us to have a conversation about the Iraq war. Fuck you. That's not why you did it. You did it. You set up a thing to like, uh, by the way, we could, we could probably also get into a whole conversation about the film's treatment of women which I think is very much about this sort of toxic male uh, area. Um, But in any event, so that idea comes from his roommate. Then when it comes to the idea for Facebook, he really kind of just tweaks. He, he, I mean, there's a, there's a strong case to be made that he did steal Harvard connection. (laughs) Like it's, or, or that basically he didn't, even if he didn't steal it, he took it's one of its better pieces, which was, you need to be part of the, the exclusivity. You need to be mm-hmm. in college and get an invite from someone who's already in college to be invited to this social network. So that he took. And then, oh gosh, there was one other thing that he took from someone else. And I forget what it was. He, he just, he kind of, ta- oh, the the Eureka moment where it's his moment of inspiration. It's It comes from um, uh, Joe... Uh, Matziel, like his, his, oh, uh, yeah, Dustin. He's like, hey, do you know if she's dating anyone? He doesn't come up with that himself. He comes up with it because someone came to him with an actual human problem and he was like, I can use that. <laughs> so, you I know, can use humans. Well, exactly. But like, that's the thing. Like, Mark Zuckerberg, like, he doesn't create Facebook out of whole cloth. It's something that he draws inspiration from other people, but he is the one who is successful at the end. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's apt. I think that's striking. I do agree with the the table metaphor. Just because someone makes a great table doesn't mean they stole no, the idea. Yeah, I don't it think means, he means stole they made a great it, table. At the same time, I also like you know to continue that metaphor. No one should credit Mark Zuckerberg as the inventor of the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the the film makes clear that he is inspired. He is continually inspired, and Sean Parker inspires him as well. It inspires him to move out to California. Inspires him to drop out of college. It inspires him to. Essentially, you make this a business. I think, you know, one of the, I mean, going back to kind of talking about Zuckerberg himself, though, I think another striking part of the film to me was kind of towards the beginning when Eduardo first says, um, we need to start thinking about advertiser, advertisers. And he says, no, he says, we don't know what it is yet. We don't know what it can be. We know that it is cool. He says, um, 
it'll never be finished. And Eduardo's kind of taken aback by that. Eduardo thinks, you know, we made this thing and then that's it. Um, but in Zuckerberg's mind, it, it should be, it should continue to be iterative. It should continue changing and evolving. Um, and that's what we've seen happen with Facebook. It continues to change. It began as, uh, you know, college exclusive, and then it started including high school students. And then it started excluding, including everyone. Um, and then it morphed from, you know, essentially not a dating site, but it really was a, you know, a social networking site, a way to kind of creep on your friends or, or creep on that girl you had a crush on in uh, geometry class or whatever. Um, and then morphed to, you know, starting to uh, interact with these people at the wall and then sharing posts and, and sharing articles and sharing links and then spreading misinformation and influencing yeah. elections. And sucking up all the ad dollars. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Oh, I forgot. When I was going through uh, Zuckerberg's literally of we fucked up, I forgot the we lied about how video views work on our site. <laughs> yes. We literally lied about the data and helped kill, help people lose uh, jobs for countless people with yeah. pivot to video. Anyway, just a bang up <laughs> job by a, Bonafide great guy. Great guy, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> well, and what's so interesting about the talk of the of a sequel, and I mean it seems kind of silly for um, you know, a movie that prestigious and a movie that um uh I don't know, it it doesn't immediately seem like, oh yes, a, a sequel to that movie. But if there were to be a sequel, I do think it's a good idea. If you were just writing a movie about Facebook right now and what happened, you would get Aaron Sorkin to write that movie. It's like the team was already the team that was hired ten years ago is the same team to do the job justice now. Um, and I know Sorkin said that he would do it, and I heard rumors that Fincher is also not opposed to it. Um, it's maybe interested in doing it as well, uh, and I think that would be fascinating because <laughs> it, you know. I don't know. I, I just feel like the the way they left it, it 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 kind of you have that hanger on um, uh, that final scene of kind of it comes back full circle to him refreshing his page and he's he's still just continuing to look for that recognition um, from that girl who spurned him uh, in that opening scene, which is one of the best opening scenes in cinematic history. It's incredible. Yeah, I definitely think with social network you could do like a Godfather Part Two kind of thing in terms of like watching his further corruption, you know, like he's still a bad guy, but like, you know, if you put it like the thing about the thing that the social network doesn't really do is it sort of like, it doesn't show Zuckerberg on the world stage. Yeah. And now he's there. And now he's like, he's a guy that like gets called into Congress every six months. Cause he fucked up <laughs> and like, you know, but now like he has a wife and like, he's like, Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm a normal guy, you know? And I, I just want to do, you know, I went around the country talking to people and it's like, no, you're still a fucking weirdo who's a fucking creep. Like, you know, like that's who, that's who you are. I mean, it's good. I'm glad you're, you know, richer than Croesus, but. <laughs> well, and, uh, um, this is just, by the way, this podcast quickly devolved into me, man. Fuck Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> just dunking on Zuckerberg. What you got in that Sundance bottle there? Is that, is that I know, right? Quarantine day 75, just getting drunk and dunking on Zuck. Yeah. <laughs> Zuck on it. <laughs> um, well, what's also interesting is that there already was kind of a sequel to Social Network, and it's Silicon Valley. Right. Uh, that kind of like Richard Hendricks and, you know, you say, you know, pulled into Congress. That was the final season of Silicon Valley. <laughs> it just it just keeps happening. And you have these these really brilliant minds that have just such their finger on the pulse of of what all of this means and, and what is going to happen. You have, uh, you know, fiction mirroring reality, even though that fiction was written 18 months ago. Right. Yeah. No, and that's the thing. You kind of need that's why I feel like the social network is such a, a vital film of the 21st century, is because it understands big tech in a way that Hollywood has largely avoided. Um, most of the time when Hollywood is talking about technology, it's like I gotta hack into the mainframe and I've gotta, <laughs> you know, you know, get the nodes firing. <laughs> like, you know, it, it's it's just techno babble. And like the social network actually cares about like, no, no, technology is a business. This business has affected our lives in this way. How will that change it? And like you're getting documentaries on this subject. Like there was the Great Hack, which was mm -hmm. about Analytica. You know, you're getting documentaries that are exploring our relationship with technology uh, or to technology. But in terms of like fiction, no one's really telling that story. And maybe because some people feel it's too new or that the research isn't there. But I think you can. I mean, between Silicon Valley and the Social Network. You can see that people are able to write about this intelligently 
and and make a larger point about this very influential industry. Yeah, most filmmakers just insert like Boris from GoldenEye, and they're like, "That's that's technology. That's the yes. hacker. He spiked <laughs> me." <laughs> um, yeah, and, and you know, obviously, like Fincher is is a massive gearhead. All the stories about Fincher is that he can do anyone's job on a film set better than any of them. Like he, you know, he knows uh, how to gaff. He knows how to light. He knows uh, what the cinematographer is doing to uh, kind of a mathematical degree. Um, and you watch on that on that behind the scenes Blu-ray, and he's directing some of those. Um, I don't know if there even was second unit on that because it, it's the montages of all the the guys doing the hot or not um the uh comparing things and you know he'll like you know he'll yell like move the table eight inches camera left or like three millimeters camera right or can that guy in the background like duck down a little bit like he's looking at the full frame that way um but you know who's been one another storyteller who i think has been doing a really fantastic job uh telling stories about tech in in a really smart way but in a way that's different from fincher and mike judge on silicon valley is alex garland um, coming from almost a, a, an emotional, you read any interview with Alex Garland and it's clear that he is very smart and understands, uh, not just the theory behind the tech that he's tackling, but the philosophical and ethical implications of that. And I think that's what he's kind of more interested in. And that's what Ex Machina is digging into, um, and Annihilation to a lesser degree, but definitely devs his show on FX, uh, FX on Hulu now, um, but I think that's that's a really interesting kind of different side of the coin of dealing with the ethical ramifications, not even of like the tech industry, but of this technology of what philosophically this means for the human race, um, specifically dealing with, uh, you know, themes of determinism and, and uh, algorithms, which seems to be the way the world is going now. I mean, we all laugh about, you know, Netflix is, you know, suggesting this based on the algorithm. But 10 years from now, we're going to be like, oh. That was the basis for how our whole lives are run now. <laughs> the algorithm predicts what we should do. Yeah, I mean, there is sort of that sort of creepiness of sort of, and again, to tie it back to Facebook, is that when your privacy gets obliterated, and this is what Westworld is exploring right now, is without privacy, if your data just gets all, gets all you know, vacuumed up into a processor and there's an algorithm that can crack it, then you don't really have free will, or if you did, it's an illusion. And what you really are is just a series of behaviors that can be gamed out in a certain way. And at that point, the, the, there are some really chilling um, outcomes in terms of what that could mean. I mean, getting, you know, a job you don't get or a relationship that doesn't turn out because something or some, some other said your future will be X. Um, so, you know, Facebook, and and again, it all kind of stems from this benign thing. I mean, even within, you know, to go back to the accidental billionaires, like the tagline of that book is like, they were just looking to like meet some girls, like, or something like that. Like they just, (laughs) and the movie is sort of like, oh, look at these, you know, humble aspirations of Facebook about guys that just wanted to be popular and be in charge of the club. And now it's this world dominating force you know, it's 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 pretty chilling in terms of how that's all going there. And I definitely think uh, Alex Garland is, is certainly offering one of the bleaker views, but not unfounded. Well, and also just the base idea in the social network, you know, when he's creating it, uh, all he has, to, he has to pull images for that hot or not thing, um, face mash or whatever. It was called hot or not. Like it was a like imitator websites popped up because I definitely played that game when I was in high school uh, on the computer. Um, but there was, um, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, so earlier in the social network um, talking about, um, gosh, what were we just talking about? What were you saying? I was saying about like the, the depictions of technology and big tech and like Alex Garland is one of the bleaker viewpoints of it. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I can't even remember. Oh, um, the idea of when he's creating Face Mash um, and then creating Facebook, um, the idea that everyone is going to put their data in. He doesn't have to do any data collecting. And that's what we've done collectively is we've given Facebook everything it needs to know about us. We've given it, you know, our birthday, our gender, our sexual preference, our political views, but then also everything we click on, every video we watch for three seconds, everything we share, everything we like is logged. 
and that's used to right. you know it's used now to to serve ads but what else could that be used for exactly like right now it's it's fairly benign like oh someone will uh, i was i was writing about sneakers and now i get served an ad for sneakers all right yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> the the yeah the implications are can be pretty uh pretty damning in terms of what happens but again and, I, and others have said this but if the what you're using is free you're the product so we are the product of facebook face <laughs> we you know the notion the sense like oh well, you don't pay for facebook yeah you do you do pay <laughs> for facebook just not with money you pay for it with information well that's what cambridge analytica was doing and that's what uh the great hack is on netflix right now it's in, it's an interesting watch if only to to kind of find out exactly how that was working but they were essentially cambridge analytica was collecting that facebook data to find out which voters to target so they knew which voters would be most likely to be swayed by a particular political ad and therefore served those specific facebook users those political ads right. so that was and fun yeah. And that's the thing. Like, and micro targeting is going to be huge in this year's election. Yeah. Again, the ramifications that like, and obviously the social network did not create Facebook, but it is to come back to the movie and not make this too much of a political podcast. <laughs> Cause where Flex, would you find yep. that on the internet? Where would you find people <laughs> talking politics to bring it back to the movie? What makes the movie hold up is that it is, it has such a firm understanding of its subject. It's not just like, and, and that, that's the thing when it was announced, you have to keep in mind the movie was announced in what two thousand eight. Yeah, somewhere Facebook around there. Facebook was formed in two thousand four. It was a four year old website at that point, and the skepticism was like, "Well, we've seen a lot of websites come and go, you know, and you know the Facebook movie like that just seems like it's just that's like making an emoji movie, and that's just <laughs> dumb. No, I mean that's that's just an example. I no one would make an emoji movie, but. Yeah. You know, the Facebook movie, but it, like you said, when Sorkin and Fincher got together, they found a deeper, more universal story that still is specifically about Facebook. It's not just, I, I think Sorkin may have said, oh, you could slot in any business, but like it, the, there is very something about the, the alienation inherent in this narrative that ties very well to the subject matter. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. And I think, you know, uh... The story goes that Sorkin wrote this script. The script was amazing. Sony loved it. Sorkin wanted to direct it. Sony said, you can direct it if her first choice passes. And their first choice was David Fincher. And Sorkin said he was fine with that. You know, obviously it, his first choice was also David Fincher. Um, but there is a, there's kind of a neat thing on that behind the scenes Blu-ray of the last shot of the last day David Fincher told Aaron he was going to direct it. And he said, I'm going to leave set, so you have to direct it, because if you don't, we won't get it. And he said he did. He got in his car and left. So, like, the scene had to be directed. The scene had to be shot. Um, and it was up to Aaron Sorkin. But Aaron Sorkin said he did two takes and thought they were good. And the assistant director said, David will kill me if you don't do more than two takes. So you've got to get some more up here. Um, he said, okay, just do it exactly like that, like, five or six more times. Um, uh, and that was kind of funny. But yeah, it's that marriage of, you know, I, I don't think Sorkin could have made that movie by himself. And I don't necessarily, I don't think Fincher could have made that movie by himself. Uh, and, you know, we kind of saw that with The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which... Uh, and you definitely see it with Molly's Game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you see them go their separate ways. And uh, Steve Jobs, I think, holds up incredibly well. I think that script is incredible. That's a very um, good script. I'm still, like, as much as I like Danny Boyle, I wish David Fincher had done that. Yeah, when he was supposed to, and he balked at, um, well, he and Sony were fighting majorly at the time, because uh, people forget that at the time that the Social Network Oscar, so uh, first of all, the Social Network was made incredibly quickly. They started shooting uh, in 2009 and completed in like early 2010, and it came out in September 2010. But by the time the Oscar season was rolling around, Fincher had already started shooting Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which was this massive project. I mean, it was this huge IP. Um, you know, famous actresses were vying for the lead role and everything. It was a huge deal. Um, but Sorkin and Sony fought over the marketing. Fincher won complete and entire control over the marketing as he had over the social network, um, which is why the trailers for the social network are incredible. I think making a first impression for the Facebook movie was vitally important, and I think they knocked it out of the park. Um, on Dragon Tattoo, he was very protective of Rooney Mara and only wanted her portrayed in very specific certain ways. Um, I think the trailer for Dragon Tattoo was incredible, but Sony disagreed with kind of the way that went down. Well, I mean, the films, that film's box office was not what Sony wanted. I no. mean, 
Although they sold it to Fincher as like, we're going to let you make a hard R franchise. And he was like, awesome. No one gets to do that. I will do that. And then like the market, like, and then like the first trailer is the feel bad movie of Christmas (laughs) and it doesn't perform at Christmas. It's like, this is what you guys told me to do. Yeah. So, uh, I don't hate that movie. I think, uh, it's gorgeous from a technical standpoint. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, but it does feel a little, a little flat. I feel like its structure is off. I get why it's structured the way that it is, but I feel like waiting until the second act to bring your two main characters together is a problem. Yeah. I also feel that its depictions of sexual violence are strongly. I think I think a woman would have directed it better, to be perfectly honest. I feel yeah. like for a movie about sexual violence inflicted by men and like how a woman, a female character reacts to that and how you know they move through that world. I think you really need a strong female point of view. And I think, you know, Fincher, as good as he is, could not provide that. I think, especially the fact that, like, the fact that Daniel Craig and David Fincher wear their glasses the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel Craig is playing David Fincher in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. (laughs) But yeah, so that underperformed. And then Fincher was in negotiations for Steve Jobs. And he was like, all right, I want control over the marketing and I need this for the budget. And Sony was like, no, we're not doing that again. And he was like, okay, bye. And they got Danny Boyle. So, yeah. And I still, I still think Steve Jobs is, is pretty damn good. I do too. I think that script is incredible. It was a crime that it, I don't even think it was nominated for best uh, screenplay that year. Um, but yeah, Fastbender is really good in that. Fastbender's good. Winslet's good. Seth Rogen's good. I mean, it's, it's a good film. Um, but I think, you know, they botched the rollout. And I also think, I mean, we want to talk about like Sony selling films. I mean, I think they assumed that Steve Jobs as a person would be more interesting to people just on the face of it rather yeah. than no, no, you actually have to Steve Jobs was an asshole who sold technology that we liked. So you need to yeah. do more than just be like Steve Jobs. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if there's something that movie is missing, I think that it, I think that movie, not to go off on too much of a tenant, but I think that movie does a really great job of getting into the humanity of Steve Jobs and the, the, uh, not that they had a ton of it, but the, the human person behind this public persona, but doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of the tech and the, his impact on the tech world as much, which I think a director like David Fincher probably would have brought to the table. Yeah, probably. So. Yeah. So um, the social network is still great, though. It's still yes. a fantastic film. Still did not win Best Picture. Still did not win Best whatever Picture. Whatever the hell reason. Uh, you have an article on the site about <laughs> yes. that not working out. And I just feel like, you know, the Oscars had recently changed. In 2009, they, uh, they opened up the field. And so social network is part of that. Like, there were more than five nominees that year, right? Because uh, Yes. Yeah. So, but it was, it was like 127 really... hours and winter's bone. Yes, exactly. So, you know, social network did very well with all the critics groups. It looked like it was running away with it. And then like the Weinstein machine yeah. that was how to get Oscars. And I think honestly, what you're looking there and what you don't see today is I think the diversity push that the Academy has finally made really paid off. The The fact that the King speech won over the show, social network speaks to the fact that even though you expanded the group of nominees, you still had a group, uh, an Academy votership that was largely old, white, and male. Yeah. So what film are they going to go for? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, it, you know, I think Fincher is a bit of a prickly personality. I think everyone uh, respected him, but it I don't know. It just blows my mind that Tom Hooper won Best Director for that movie, <laughs> for The King's Speech, which, like... I mean, I think they got it wrong that whole year. I mean, the fact that that Christopher Nolan wasn't even nominated for Inception. Yeah, was insane. Like, look at that. That film is ridiculously tough to make. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, it did win screenplay, Sorkin won screenplay, it won score for Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which is incredible. Um, and their score was incredible. And it won um, editing, which it deserved. And editing was a surprise. And so watching it live that night, you know, I knew that Social Network was a bit of an underdog because King's Speech had won the PGA, it had won the BAFTA, um, and Hooper had won the DGA. Um, I think Fincher had actually won the BAFTA for Best Director, though. Um, so there was some hope that maybe it would split and maybe Fincher would go director. Um, but when it won Best Editing, I was like, holy shit, like maybe the social network will win Best Picture, but it didn't. That was kind of the beginning of a new trend in the Academy where 
best editing doesn't necessarily go along with the best picture winner every year um, like it used to. Because best editing used to be kind of a bellwether um, of of what was going to win best picture. Um, and, you know, the Social Network reigned supreme at the Golden Globes. It won best picture, won best director. Um, I think Firth was the favorite to win best actor that year anyway, although I think in hindsight that was still the wrong decision. I think Jesse Eisenberg gives a better performance. I agree. Um, yeah, I don't know. The King's Peak is you look at that movie and it won Best Picture and Best Director and Best Actor, and it's just such a nothing movie. It's just like, yay. Yeah, that that film human wins. Human drama. The Academy is like, no, people watch it like, well, at least there can't be more of a nothing film to ever win Best Picture. And then the next year, the artist comes along. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, hold my beer. <laughs> here's the artist which is just in the artist is fine i don't really have in much agenda. like yeah i don't i don't feel like like films like the king's speech and the artist like they don't make me mad like the only reason you get mad at them is like because of how they fit into the academy framework but if you were to judge them on their own merits they're perfectly fine and inoffensive movies they don't hold up particularly well but they're not like they don't they don't i don't look at them like i look at like something like bohemian rhapsody and i'm like what is this garbage <laughs> this is actual fucking garbage that broke my brain that that movie won so many oscars i was like this doesn't i mean the king's speech at least like it had good reviews you know it, it was a movie it's an that story that you know made sense bohemian rhapsody was just a mess <laughs> had bad reviews um not to go on too much of a tangent, but it was something I did find interesting about that year, though, uh, as well, is it, it was not long after Crash had won Best Picture over Brokeback Mountain, which was another huge what the fuck um, thing that happened there. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I think the I think that was part of, uh, you know, the Academy was going through some growing changes. And it was, you know, as we said, the year previously it was the year that the Dark Knight got snubbed for Best Picture and Best Director. Um, thus expanding the best picture category to nominees. Uh, and that first lineup was interesting. You had like the kids are all right, I think. And like Toy Story three, in addition to the social network and the King's speech. Um, but here we are, it's been almost 10 years. Like the social network just went on Netflix and everyone was like celebrating it and people are eager to talk about it. The King's speech has been on Netflix for like two years now. <laughs> no one, no one cares. No one, no one's rewatching that movie. No, yeah. you know, it's, fine but and then another reason not to get bent out of shape over the oscars like time will win out and it was such a political uh just like shitstorm with weinstein uh milking that whole rating controversy you know the fact that the king's speech which is which by the way like let's can we just also say like obviously harvey weinstein is a fucking monster but also he wasn't particularly good at his job (laughs) <laughs> like his whole awards campaign thing was like the rating should be this. He did that shit for not just the King speech, but also for bully and blue Valentine. That was like the only trick in his bag. Yeah. It's like, let's vilify the MPAA. I'm like, who the fuck fucking cares? Like a fucking <laughs> intern would come up with something better. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's going to be... die in prison. So whatever. <laughs> his movie wasn't good enough to win on its own merits. So we had to create a controversy in order to, right. to, pin it as this righteous underdog so exactly yeah anyway social network rules <laughs> <laughs> very true all right let's uh with that let's move on to recently watched uh what have you seen lately uh so i finally took the plunge and watched alita battle angel on hbo as i as longtime listeners of the podcast will know i enjoy watching movies that are so so a year later on hbo instead of uh going out and seeing them in theaters uh, when I didn't have a chance to, or just didn't feel like it. Um, and it's not bad. <laughs> like it's fine. It's probably one of Robert Rodriguez's be- better films. Um, and I remember the project being in the works. Uh, it was around the same time as the social network thing happened. Cause uh, or a little before, cause James Cameron was deciding what his next project was going to be after um, Titanic. Yeah. Uh, gosh takes him so long to make movies um but it was between alita and avatar um and he chose avatar um but what i was struck by with alita and i have no uh familiarity with the source material or anything so i was just watching this entirely cold um but seeing robert rodriguez work with a cinematographer and work with a composer and you know not this kind of like do-it-yourself style that he has on so many of his films like i felt like the film was all the better for it um and it helps to have, you know, Bill Pope as your cinematographer. Um, but I don't know. It, like, it looked really nice and it felt nice and it allowed him to kind of focus on the story. And I thought the story was pretty interesting. I thought the world building was pretty fantastic. Um, 
I now see why everyone was clamoring for a sequel because they don't they don't really tell the whole story. It ends as kind of like a part one um, in terms of like this overarching adventure, I guess. Um, I don't entirely understand why the lead character had to be entirely CG, but, you know, it was fine. So Alita Battle Angel, it's fine. Yeah, I watched it on a plane and I was like, this is this is solid. This is not a bad film. This isn't trash. It is definitely one of Robert Rodriguez's better efforts. And I feel like, you know, I actually, it, it feels, I, I like its ambition. I would rather see a film that kind of bites off more than it can chew and doesn't entirely work than something that's kind of sparse and doesn't really come together. You know, like uh, recently I, re- I watched on HBO as, a, you know, a film. Uh, <laughs> you pulled a chitwood. You can I pulled a chitwood and watched Mortal, Mortal Engines which is the same kind of deal. Like there's way too much story here for one movie, but it's one movie regardless. And it's actually got some really interesting world building. And like, you know, it's, it's not terrible. It's not the worst thing ever, but like, it's also not, it's, I don't know. It's, it's got issues. That movie is crazy. (laughs) It's like, what if cities were roaming, but also what if two cities fought? And then what if you're like, it just like continues going. It feels like someone's telling you like this story that they cooked up while they were like on acid or something. (laughs) It it does feel like that, but it also feels like let's combine a bunch of young adult novels together and see what comes out. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. But yeah, Alita Battle Angel, I thought was fine. I would, like, if they made a sequel, I'd be like, all right, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, also, also, it's weird, like, for all the advertising of that movie, at no point they're like, oh, this is a sports movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sports movie. It all revolves around, like, this, like, murder ball thing that they have going. Yeah. I saw, I, I like, I saw that plot point in the beginning of the movie. I was like, oh, I vaguely remember there's probably, like, an action set piece there. But, like, no, it's just, like, a major part of the movie. <laughs> it's this murder ball. Um, but to your point, in contrast, I watched the Jumanji sequel this weekend as well and was just super disappointed by it. And yeah, I really same. enjoyed the first one, but it just felt like a slapdash cash grab. Uh, like, I don't know whose idea it was to have the entire first hour of the movie being two characters explaining to two other characters over and over again what Jumanji is and what the rules are and that they are avatars. Like, it, it wasn't funny. Like, I understand what you might think that's funny if, like, two old people can't remember why they're there or what's going on but it just kept going and like it felt like an mtv movie award sketch that got stretched into a film like hey dwayne johnson and kevin hart have these old man impressions that they want to trot out can we make a movie out of that (laughs) yeah well and i think i i feel like it also lost the magic of the first movie which was like you enjoyed watching jack plack play this this girly girl character like that was fun it wasn't as fun watching him play fridge so um and you know same with you know Dwayne Johnson is the protagonist the hero that you're supposed to identify with um and watching this kind of insecure kid in this body navigate that was fun watching him continually ask what is Jumanji who is Jumanji what am I doing my hips feel good like it's just not fun so it felt like they had like half of an idea and we're like we gotta meet this release date yeah and we gotta get this film out what we gotta strike while the iron's hot yeah so that was disappointing. So I agree with you. I'd rather watch something like Alita Battle Angel, which, you know, isn't a, uh, it doesn't, it's not a slam dunk, but it has a lot of interesting ideas that are executed pretty well. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I watched on Criterion as part of their Columbia Noir section, uh, Murder by Contract, which is a really good Hitman movie. So <laughs> it's like a, a really, you know, razor sharp 80 minutes. And the plot just follows this normal guy. He's like, I want to be a Hitman. And he just decides to be a hitman and he's like, but he's very smart and very disciplined. And so he just devotes himself to it. And usually like the plot of this kind of thing is like the guy who's really good at it being a hitman will have some sort of moral awakening and be like, Oh, I don't know if I should be a hitman. And he does not have that. He doubles. (laughs) Basically the twist is he gets assigned to kill a woman. And his reaction isn't like, that's morally wrong. His reaction is, I need to be paid more because women are unpredictable. <laughs> and then he starts trying to plot out how to murder this woman. <laughs> it's so good. It's so just, it's just like a nasty kind of, like, I guess the, the, the easiest film I could compare it to would be Killing Them Softly, which is also a Hitman movie. And it's about how America is a business. And in Murder by Contract, he's like, it's just logical for me to be a Hitman. It's just, it's always in demand. It's the best form of murder because 
a stranger killing a stranger isn't going to come back to you and it pays really well and I'm good at it. <laughs> like, why would I not be a murderer? <laughs> and it's just, it's really well done and it's super entertaining. And like the score is kind of jaunty and fun, but like the, even though the stakes are very sinister, it's very good. If you have Criterion Channel, definitely check out Murder by Contract. Interesting. That sounds fun. Yeah. Killing them uh, softly, also fun, but not in the also with its with its fuck America ethos. <laughs> Maybe a good movie to watch right now. Yeah, so. which is on Netflix. You could watch Killing Them Softly, um, a film that has an F cinema score because people are like, "This isn't an action movie." No, <laughs> no, it's not. There's like really weird slow motion, high speed photography of Ben Mendelsohn getting high. It's yeah. like, all right, let's do this for five minutes. <laughs> sure. Go with God, Andrew Dominic. Exactly. I look forward to your Marilyn Monroe film that's never going to come out. Oh, yeah. They were in the middle of production. It got shut down. Um, all right. So should we look at our poll and see what uh, is coming up next week? What we're, I've, we're... I've pulled it up. Are you ready for the results? I'm ready for the results. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we gave uh, uh, people a choice on, on Twitter between Minority Report, Inception, Taxi Driver, and Hot Rod. And the winner is Inception. Nolan fans gonna Nolan fan. Nolan fans gonna Nolan. Next week we will be talking about Inception, which is <laughs> so it'll be a good primer for uh, Tenet, which I mean we'll all be talking about Nolan later this year. Maybe I mean, it's not coming out on July seventeenth. I'll tell you that right now. Tenet. My brother says it is though. Oh, I'm sure they are. I mean, yeah, it's definitely coming out. You know, in three months when this whole pandemic clears up, just magically. <laughs> We'll talk about, yeah, we'll, we'll all go out to the theater to see Tenet. Just say it's, you're moving it to December and call it a day. I will be curious to see, though, if they if they move it to December, if they also then move Dune into summer of 2021. Or, yeah. <laughs> or if they're like, we need all the money we can get right now, so just put them both out in December. I mean, you can try that, but, like, you're just cannibalizing box office of yourself at that point. Because people aren't going to... I mean, yeah. unless, unless your working theory is, is that people are so hard up for movies now after a pandemic, which, by the way, still won't be over <laughs> yeah. in December. Like, they're going to go to see Tenet and going to go see Dune. Those I don't know. Chalamet I, stands. But, yeah, exactly. It'll be Chalamet versus Pattinson. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yes, next week we'll be talking about Inception, which is currently on Netflix. So give it a watch. We'll be talking about it. Uh, if you want to get with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, so everyone, and we'll be back with you next week. It's that little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game. So that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.